We'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start there. We won't finish there, but we'll start there this morning. Father, it is such a joy to sing praise to you and to express our love to you who first loved us. If that hadn't been the case, Lord, then we would not be able to come before you with praise and thanksgiving on our lips and in our hearts because we would not know what it was like to be saved. But because of your great love for us, you, who are rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, and all this by your grace. Thank you, Lord. And thank you that you are a God who speaks and encourages and challenges and stimulates and inspires. Come, Lord, and speak to us, we ask, through your Spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thinking of the love of God, we could draw out one of the phrases from the scriptures and say God is love, one of those statements. But aren't we glad that God doesn't just throw out phrases like that, God is love, but he showed us what God is like. He showed us what love is like. So we have images to follow. Here's another one. Have faith in God. Aren't we glad that we aren't left with just bald statements like that? Have faith in God. What on earth does that look like? Well, we've got a whole Bible full of stories that show us what that is like. So this writer to the Hebrews is confronted with people who are tempted because of the difficulty of being God's people in their present situation, are finding it hard to do that and are tempted to retreat a little, perhaps even back into Judaism in the hope that the persecution that is increasingly evident around them will disappear. But this writer here says, no, 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 keep going on, keep going on. Don't you understand that all the people in the Old Testament looked forward, looked forward to something greater? And he's been telling us about that for the last ten chapters. And then he gets to this chapter and draws out some of those stories briefly to explain what that faith looks like and draws out the stories of faith. So he says, without faith it's impossible to please God and then shows us illustrations of faith in action. When he gets to verse 32, he's obviously running out of time or scroll or something because he says, but what, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, blah, blah, blah. So I always take that when I read it to be a kind of, I don't have time to write about it, but you have time to read it, so go back and read it. You know, I've given you all these illustrations, you go back and read those stories, inspire them, go back and turn to your scriptures, and you'll see the point I'm making. And then he lists in summary fashion what these folk got up to. So we're going to look at the first one, all right, Gideon, because he says, I haven't got time to tell you about him, but you can go and look at him. So turn to Judges chapter 6. And if we did one of those word association things, you know, I say a word and you say a word back, the first word that comes into your head. I say Gideon and you say? Fleece. Is that right? He's known for his fleeces, isn't he? Often that's the first thing that people come to. 
But he's been used by this writer to the Hebrews. I wish I knew who it was, because it's much easier to say Paul or Ananias or someone than take the writer to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews. Oh, a bit, a bit long-winded, isn't it? Anyway, I wish I knew who it was, and it would be easier to say it. But he says, or she says, go back and read the story of Gideon, and you will discover what faith looks like. Now, if you look initially at the story of the fleece, that initially doesn't look very much like a faithful story, does it? It sounds as if this bloke is riven with doubt, paralysed by fear, and can't get his act together. And given half a chance, he's forever asking God for signs. It doesn't sound like a very good example of faith, does he? But that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews says he is. I don't have time to tell you about him, but you go back and read him. His story, you can lay it alongside all these other people, even David. And you'll find faith. So what do we discover in the story of Gideon? How does Gideon demonstrate to us the nature of faith? It's not that his story is in the Bible merely as a visual aid, so that he didn't really live, it's just a made-up story. No, it's a real story. And it's not as if God's manipulated his story so that, in fact, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later, people like us will be able to say, oh, that's what faith looks like. No, God's recorded it because it really happened. And he's chosen to give us a story because God loves to give us stories warts and all, doesn't he? And that's really helpful, I discover for me, because I find living the Christian life is a kind of warts and all experience, isn't it? I dare say if we all spent a little time together, if I said, you know, get into twos and threes and tell each other what this last week's been about, some of you will say, oh, such joy, such wonder, such great things have happened. Others of you will be looking like, oh, well, they didn't happen to me. Last week was actually quite a difficult week, actually. It was full of challenges and problems. Some of you will say, I'm really, really experiencing God's closeness at the moment. It's so wonderful to read his word. And others of you will be thinking, well, I think God's pressed the mute button because I don't hear anything at all at the moment. It seems just like hard graft. Isn't that right? Life goes up and down. Isn't that how it is? Or even we know that last week was a good week, next week might be not so good. Not a kind of artificial balancing act, but that's the way life is, isn't it? I'm so glad God's written stories in the Bible that show us what God is like when life is like that. So we're not going to read the whole story. We're going to read little bits of it, but I've gone for it because I know you know the story. You know Gideon's story, don't you? It's very... Oh, right, okay. We better... We better okay. I was taught when I was learning to preach, I was taught... People didn't come on Sunday morning to find out the history of the Midianites and Malachites and all the other ites. They didn't come for a history lesson. So we try not to get into a history lesson here because actually the Midianites and the Malachites feature in this story. But I'm not going to give you history this morning. You'll be glad to know. And I just looked up at the what clock. Then I feel I must take my watch off because the clock up there says 20 past one. So um, that's going to mislead me, isn't it? So, what's happened is that Joshua and his friends have all died and true to form and true to Moses' prediction and true to Joshua's prediction, the people of Israel have forgotten God and got themselves into a pickle of sin. 
They will do it. This won't be the last time. It's certainly not the first time. And the book of Judges records the terrible cycle of sin. That the people fall into sin. And God says, Okay, if you don't want me, you'll have the consequences of your sin. So allows other peoples and other situations to come in upon them to oppress them. Not because God doesn't love them, but precisely because he does love them and wants the pressure of the oppression to bring them back to God. Eventually, the penny dawn, the drops, and the light dawns, and they say, help us, Lord, help us, which is exactly what God wanted them to do, and cried out for help, and God would respond to them by sending a judge, someone who came along, kind of with a sword in their hand, and rescued them and delivered them from the people who were oppressing them. And all the time that judge lived, they would have peace. But the moment the judge died, you get it, they fall into sin again. And God lets them reap the consequences of their sin and suffer because of it until they cry out in pain and call for help and God sends a deliverer and all the time the deliverer lives, they live in peace and harmony and in trust in God and then the deliverer dies and then they go from the sin. It's called a vicious circle, isn't it? That's what judges are all about. Well, they're in one of those cycles and this one's lasted seven years and it's awful because every time harvest comes, and John will particularly enjoy this bit, or not enjoy it as the case may be, just as they're about to take the harvest, they are inundated by immigrants, by their hundreds of thousands who come in and just go through the land like a locust swarm and pinch everything and leave them just the dregs. So every year they lose their harvest. It's devastating. Seven years it's been happening. It's got to the point where, in fact, um, people do strange things. So in, in um, verse 11, we find that, Joah, uh, that Gideon is actually in a wine press threshing wheat. Because they think, no one will try and look for me in a wine press to thresh wheat. Because you've put vine grapes in a wine press and it's the wrong season. So no one's going to look for me here. So anyway, the story begins here, okay? The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13, But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. We'll stop the story there. We're going to carry on in a moment. Here's the first thing that Gideon shows us about what it is to be a man or woman of faith. Honesty. That's what it is. You can't pretend with God, but how many times we try? 
How many times have you found yourself pretending you're in a better place with God than you really are and pretending to Him, of all people, that you're in a better place? Honesty is a great feature in the man of faith. See, the, the Lord... Now, it says the angel of the Lord in verse 11. Who's the angel of the Lord? I'm not quite sure. And no other commentators. Because by the time you get to verse 14, it's the Lord. Isn't it? And then by the time you get to verse 20, it's the angel of God. And I think the writer is being deliberately mysterious here and trying to give us a picture. But whoever it is, Gideon is directly engaging with God, whether God is sitting under the tree, physically visible to him, or it's an angel of the Lord. It doesn't really make a lot of difference to the story. Gideon is engaging with God in a very direct way and he's very honest about it. The Lord appears and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, oh yeah? Well, it doesn't look like it to me. It looks like he's gone away. Where are all the wonders that we are used to hearing about? Not much evidence of them around at the moment. He's very honest. If you read the Psalms, you find they are breathtakingly honest with God, are they not? So honesty, not only with God... We can afford to be honest with God. How are you with God? If you went out from here this morning and you felt that God was saying, now Charles, how are things between you and me? I need to be honest, don't I? No good pretending. How are things with you and the Lord? Tell him. He knows anyway, he wants you to tell him. Honesty is a good thing. But not only towards God, but towards ourselves. See what happens? God says, I've got a job for you to do. It's to save Israel out of the hand of these hordes. And Gideon, in true biblical fashion, says, Who? Me? Looking round to see if God could possibly be addressing anybody else. You must be joking. I come from... The, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is not the smallest tribe, but his is the weakest clan, and I am the least in my family. If you've got to choose an inadequate person, Lord, you've got the right one here. So he's not only honest about God, as it were, here, how he feels about God, but he's also honest about himself. He doesn't have any false evaluation of who he is. The man of faith and the woman of faith knows who they are and has a fair, sober assessment of themselves. He doesn't offer to God himself and say, well, I'm glad you asked me, Lord, because I've been longing to do this. I'm just your man. I've been doing bodybuilding exercises for the last 20 years and now I'm just the man for the job. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to me. He doesn't say that. In fact, you rarely find that in Scripture. The men and women of faith usually say, Lord, I'm a bit perplexed that you're choosing me to do this job. So the man and woman of faith has an honest assessment of who they are and the situation. They're honest people, people of integrity. Not the kind of honesty where people say, Charles, I've got a few things to say to you, and you know it's coming, don't you? The brick in the face, kind of, boom. I tell you this in love, brother, but you know what they're going to say, don't you? Not that kind of honesty about other people, but honesty about my relationship with God and where it is and where it isn't, and honesty about my relationship with myself. Who am I? Who am I? I will be no one but God. Oh, I've got gifts and abilities, but God gave me those in the first place. 
Without him giving them, I wouldn't have them. Oh, I've got experience, but that's experience with God. So I've got something to offer, but nothing that God didn't give me first. Honesty, straightforwardness. Faith is not pretending. We don't pretend when we're faith. Oh, I've got lots of faith. We tell it as it is. That's the first thing. Let's move on then, shall we? So God's answer in verse 16 is, Well, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So the key is, of course, you know, if you know God, the key is God will be with you. Let's move on. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Here's the second point that we could draw out from Gideon's story about what the man or woman of faith looks like. Not only a person of breathtaking honesty, plain and straightforwardness about their relationship with God and who they think they are. Here's the second thought. The man and woman of faith directs their faith exclusively towards God. You see what Gideon is asking for here? Verse 17, if now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. I want to know it's really you. We've come to be to use words in an in almost an unbiblical way. We talk about times of praise and worship. The Bible never talks about that. It always talks about worshipping God. Praise and worship towards God. It always has God involved in the sentence. But we've come to talk about praise and worship as if they stand alone. You could have a time of praise and worship even if God wasn't near, kind of thing. And faith is another one of those words. Where we will say, how much faith have you got? I've got more faith. And, you know, we almost talk about faith in faith, don't we? But faith is always in God. Jesus says, have faith in God. The man or woman of faith directs that faith exclusively towards God. Not in God's answers, but in God himself. That's what he really wants. So look what he does. He says, would you wait a moment? Because, because I want to have a sign that it really is you. Can we have a meal together like Abraham perhaps did? Maybe he's thinking about Abraham. You know, Abraham had the three men come to visit him. It was actually God. And he has a meal for him. He does the same thing. He goes away. And it's not one of those, you know, straight out the freezer, put it in the microwave, bing! and 30 seconds later it's a meal like that he has to get the goat he has to kill the goat he has to drain the blood from the goat isn't it right? then he has to make bread alright there's no, no yeast in it so it's quite a quick job there but I think cooking a goat takes a bit of time 
I defer to you ladies, but I don't think it takes three minutes, does it? You're talking about perhaps a couple of hours here. And God says, that's fine, I'll wait. He's not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry because he sees what his servant wants. His servant wants to do what God is asking if he's sure that it's God who's asking. So God is very patient. There's a big job to do, but God is not in a hurry. What is more important is he gets his servant to the place where he would do it for the right reasons in the right way. He's directed exclusively at God. Our faith is in God. Which is why we spend so much time thinking about God. Because he is the object of our faith. Have faith as small as mustard seeds, says Jesus. It doesn't have to be much. So long as it's faith in God. Then we're safe, aren't we? Let's move on then. Verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. And Gideon does what he is asked to do. But he does it in fear because he's terrified the people of the village are going to string him up for doing it because they have an altar to Baal and it's in his father's house his father seems to be the guardian of it see how far the people have got from God so what has happened here is God is saying to Gideon before we come and do something in the public arena there's something in your private life that needs to be dealt with now this is how God works I was thinking about this the other day and just thinking, if when I became a Christian, which is a long time ago now, I remember the time and the place and all the rest of it, but if at that moment God said, now Charles, I'm going to thoroughly, thoroughly cleanse you from everything, not just in principle, but actually, I would never have got up from, my, from the floor. It would have been a devastating experience. God doesn't do that, strangely. He forgives me all my sin. But over a period of time, he continues to sanctify me. Isn't that right? Bringing more up to the surface and saying, now, this is the point. So at this point in Gideon's life, up to this point, God has put up with something in Gideon's life that is actually sinful. But the point that God is saying now is, now, that's the end of it, Gideon. No more of that. You'll find it in your own life. So the man and woman of faith discovers that God says from time to time, as they move through life, I've put up with this in your life so far, but no longer. Now it has to be dealt with. This is the moment. So faith involves obedience in the personal life as well as in the public. Oh, we all want to be people of faith who can stand before others and say, I have great faith, like, you know, George Muller or someone like that. But that starts by exercising that faith and obedience in the private place. So what God is saying here, Gideon, there's something rotten in your family. You've got to deal with it now. This is the moment. Otherwise it will come back to bite you and I'll not have it before you move on. So there are those times in our lives, my friends, when God will bring us up short and that thing that up to now he has not confronted us on, he says, enough, enough. It's got to be dealt with before we move on. Do you remember the people going through the 
wilderness wandering time, all those 40 years, they didn't circumcise any of the babies. Why not? They were told to, but they didn't. But the moment they went into the promised land, before they did anything else, God told Joshua, now, circumcise. Enough. I put up with it during the wilderness wanderings, but now, deal with it now, before you move on. You find this principle occurring again and again. And it's true to life, isn't it? True to life. When God took me on, he knew how rotten my life is. So none of it surprises him. It surprises me, but it doesn't surprise him. But he doesn't deal with it all in one. Just on an ongoing basis. So when you get to that point, when God says, now is the moment, take hold of it, go with it. So being the woman or man of faith involves obedience to God in the personal, small things of life, as it were, as well as in the big public issues of life. And he does that. And something happens. The people of the town come up and say in the morning, the, the altar's gone, Asher's gone, who did this? And they check out and find that Gideon and his bunch did it. So they say, bring him out, we're going to kill him. But his father says, interestingly, his father says, you don't have to speak up on behalf of Baal. If he's a real God, then he'll look after himself. What a nonsense to think about him having to be defended by you. And Gideon acting in faith on his own has actually begun a process of change in his own family and in the village as a whole. Because actually in a few sentences, when Gideon blows a trumpet and calls them, they will all come to support him. Those who are about to kill him. So being obedient in small things actually changes something in his own family and the process of change begins because of the obedience of one man. Never underestimate what God can bring about because of what seems to be a small, insignificant act of obedience that you make in the private place to God. It can bring about profound change. And then we get to verse 36. By this time, Gideon knows what God wants him to do. He's confident that it's God who's asking him to do it. Well, I think he is anyway. The Spirit of the Lord has come down upon him. Verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. That's his bunch. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, that's his tribe, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. And there they all are, 32,000 men, and Gideon, all ready to attack the Malachites and the Midianites, and I always want to say termites, because um, it's too inviting not to, isn't it? And they're all gathered there together, and Gideon says, uh, just a moment, guys, would you mind just hanging on a second, because I just want to talk something through with God. This man is still fearful. And when you read the commentaries, you find that some of them, not all of them, but some of them say, yeah, well, he really lacked faith. How could he possibly be used as an example of faith? Because here he is again asking God for signs. But I think it's very true to life, isn't it? That you're asked to do something, and then two days later you're thinking, did God really say that to me, or was I dreaming it? Um, you're not really sure. Have you ever had that experience? That you know, really, it happened, but then you think, but I daren't move on it in case it was just, just wishful thinking. It would be the height of arrogance to do something if it wasn't God, and you just want that confirmation. I think this is true to life. 
Most of us would say with the father of the epileptic son, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what Gideon is saying here. And what's more, God doesn't castigate him for it. doesn't say, oh, for goodness sake, Gideon, how many more times have I got to give you signs? He doesn't say anything like that. He takes it as a reasonable thing. He understands the weakness and frailty. And Gideon is given to us as an example of faith. So faith is not, is not the absence of fear. Faith is recognising your fear, taking hold of your fear and taking them to God. That's what faith is. It's not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is facing your fear and doing it anyway. And in biblical terms, faith is facing your fear and saying, I bring them to you, Lord. I have this worry and concern. It's back to your honesty again, isn't it? So he says, Lord, if I take these men into war, this is what he's thinking, I think, and and it wasn't you telling me to do this, they're all going to die. I'm going to die. It'll be the height of stupidity. I've got to be sure, Lord, that you are asking me to do it. Then I'm very willing. Because the story goes that he does it. So it's not that he's trying to worm his way out of it. But he wants to do it. So he says this bit about the fleece. You know, please, can the, what is it? Look, I'll place the wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the, gra- on the fleece and all the ground is dry then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. And that's what happened. And then in verse 39, please don't be angry with me, Lord. Can we reverse it, just in case that was a kind of, you know, one of those things that happens from time to time. And uh, this time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night God did so. So after two nights, so the guys are waiting there, twiddling their thumbs for another two nights while Gideon gets on with this. But God is willing to do it with him. He's facing his fears. So he doesn't use a fleece to discover the will of God. He knows the will of God. It is to confirm the will of God. And he doesn't use a fleece in order to be in a better position to fight the war. Lord, if you were to give me 1.6 million more soldiers, then I'll know it's you. He's not in a better position. At the end of it, he's got a wet fleece or a dry fleece, which is not a lot of help if you're a soldier. But at the end of this exercise, he knows it's God and what he has to do. So then he goes for it, does he? Not quite. So faith is honest and faces its fears and takes them to God. That's what the fleece is all about. But we're back to this utterly again. As he moves out to make his move, God says, before you go any further, Gideon, there's too many of you. Let me remind you, the Bible describes the enemy as locusts. No more countable than the sand on the seashore. 32,000 looks a lot of people until you realise how many the others are. And in those days, warfare was basically one bloke against one bloke. If you have more one blokes, then you're going to win, basically, because you have more swords or whatever it was. You're going to kill more people and therefore you'd win. The army with the most would win. So armies would say, how many have you got? 10,000. How many have you got? 3,000. We better surrender because we're going to get wiped out here. But God says, in that context, you've got too many. You can almost hear Gideon saying, I beg your pardon, Lord, I'm... I thought for a moment you said we had too many. My goodness. Yes, I did, said the Lord. And this is the reason. Verse 2 of chapter 7. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. 
announced now to the people anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. This is the reason behind it. The man or woman of faith wants God to be glorified, wants God to be honoured, and is prepared to do anything to preserve that. So Gideon will go through with this. God says, I'll not have the people of Israel thinking any time in the future, they did it. I know what will happen. They'll sit around the campfires and say, do you remember the great battle against the Amalekites and Midianites and what we did and how we succeeded? I know what they're like. I'll not have it, he said. So knock the numbers right down until it's impossible to make that conclusion. And Gideon goes with it because the man or woman of faith seeks the glory of God. If God were to answer my prayer, says a man or woman of faith, who would get the glory, me or God? If it's me, I'm not going to pray the prayer. But if it's God, I'll pray the prayer. You get the point? He's a great guy, isn't he, Gideon? This man, riven with fears and anxieties, but wants to do it. He's been taken through step by step by God. He wants to take him to this great place. So knocks it all down, down to 300 eventually, and there's a little bunch of folk. And there's the last little one, God gives him a little encouragement, says, if you're still worried about this battle, and I expect he was a bit worried, you know, 300 against myriads, a bit worried, God knew his servant. He says, pop down there and listen to this guy telling his friend about a dream. So he does. Verse 13 of chapter 7, arrived just as a man was telling his friend a dream. I had a dream, he's saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend said, that's Gideon. I wouldn't have got that from that, would you? But they knew about dreams in those days. And he said, that's Gideon. And Gideon overhears the enemy saying, my goodness, Gideon's about to wipe us out. And when he hears that interpretation of the dream, he worshipped God. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Here's my last point for you then. Faith gets on with it when the time is right. Faith gets on with it when the time is right. The man or woman of faith knows when eventually God has brought them to the point of saying, Enough prevarication, enough confirmation, enough assurance, now's the moment, go for it. And that's when Gideon moves forward and they have a wonderful victory and we won't read all about that. Shall I go through those again then? The man or woman of faith has an honesty about them, about who they are and about their relationship with God. They don't try to pretend with God. They're honest and open before God. The man or woman of faith directs that faith exclusively towards God. They're not putting their faith in God's answers but putting their faith in God. God can do what he like. They just want to know it's God they're working with. The man or woman of faith is obedient to God in the small personal matters of life as well as in the larger, greater public matters of life. Willing to do what needs to be done even if it seems irrelevant before they can move on to the next thing. They're willing to keep up with God and do the next thing. I wonder how many times... God has allowed me to get into a pickle of situations, so I cry out to him and God says something along the lines of, now I have your attention, Charles, I've got this issue. It's not the one you're looking at, I've got this issue. I've been trying to get your attention for all this time. Now I have it, let's deal with this. The man or woman of faith says, okay, Lord, we'll deal with that. 
Faith is honest and faces its fears, taking them to God, handing them to God, looking to God to confirm what he is saying. The man or woman of faith utterly depends upon God and is willing to go out on a limb with God. And then faith acts promptly when the time is right. The amazing Jean-François Gravelet, we know him better as Charles Blondin, is that of the famous French tightrope walker crossing Niagara Falls. His greatest fame came in June of 1859 when he attempted to become the first person to cross a tightrope stretched over 1,100 feet, sorry, this is pre-decimal, pre isn't it? 1,100 feet along across the mighty Niagara Falls. He walked across the falls several times and the, and the tightrope was 160 feet above the water at one end and 270 feet above the water at the other and each time he did it with a different daring feat. He did it once in a sack, once on stilts, once on a bicycle, once on, in the dark, and once he even carried a stove, stopped halfway across and cooked an omelette. Extraordinary, isn't it? On this tightrope that's swinging backwards and forwards above the Niagara Falls. On one occasion, though, he asked for the participation of a volunteer. A large crowd of 100,000 people gathered and the buzz of excitement ran along both sides of the riverbank. The crowd oohed and aahed as Blondin carefully walked across one dangerous step after another, blindfolded and pushing a barrow. Upon reaching the other side, the crowd's applause was louder than the roar of the falls. Then Blondin suddenly stopped and addressed his audience. Do you believe I could carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? Yes! You can do anything. You're the great Blondin. Okay. Who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and nobody did. <laughs> nobody did. See, faith is getting in the wheelbarrow because faith is honest about who's holding the wheelbarrow. Actually, later in August of that same year, his manager, Harry Colcord, did ride on Blondin's back across the falls. You may not have known that. So Gideon's story shows us that faith is not about swanning through life in a kind of way that doesn't connect with real life. It's actually getting to grips with real life and allowing God to get to grips with us. It's about knowing God and being inspired by God and going for it. I didn't have time, says the writer to the Hebrews, but we did. And I hope you'll go back to that story and perhaps read it in full again, maybe later today or tomorrow. And just let God speak to you about one fearful, small, insignificant man who, because he was willing to go with God, achieved a signal victory that he would always, ever afterwards, credit to God and say, God did that. We didn't do it. But we were with him in it. And that's the joy of Christian life. It's not that we do it, it's that God does it, and we are part of it too. Let me pray. Father, we don't know much about where each other is in our personal walk with you. So it could be that some folk here, Lord, are 
in that place of being confronted by some request of yours that requires them to move beyond where they are into some unknown territory. But for all of us, Lord, whether we are at that point or not, we know that the nature of Christian living will bring us to that place again and again. We therefore, Lord, ask that we might be people of faith, not that we can boast and show off before each other, but that we can be people whose faith pleases you, who are confident in who you are and who are willing totally to trust you. Not just, Lord, in the great things that would make entries into books that others would read, but in the ordinary affairs of life too. Help us to be those kind of people of faith who are always pushing on, pushing further, willing to go the extra mile with you, wherever you may take us. So we don't know what this week will hold, Lord. And we don't know what challenges to our faith you may have in store. We know, like Gideon, that you will care for us and watch over us and love us through it and be patient with us. We just want to say, Lord, we trust you. We rest in that trust. And we ask that you will find us willing to keep trusting you, whatever may come, and to know the joy of living in company with you. To the praise of your glorious name. Amen.